Well, we're turning to our series in the book of Exodus this morning, looking at Exodus chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 54. Uh, remember, I know it's been a couple weeks, Israel is in Egypt. Abraham's uh, descendants have now become a large people group. And so it's so far so good in terms of God's promises to Abraham. And yet the king of Egypt believes that this large people group is a threat to national security. And so he has enslaved them and instituted genocidal policies to try and uh, curtail their population growth. Uh, and then Moses is providentially protected from this genocidal uh, 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 policy, but now has fled Egypt and is living in Midian in the Sinai wilderness. And so in Exodus 3, we come to this account of this life-changing encounter between God and Moses. Uh, and coming at the beginning of the book of Exodus and this extended account, it's sort of the paradigm or the model for what a life-changing experience of God's presence looks like or a life-changing encounter with God. I'm going to read all of Exodus chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt, and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. This is God's word. My uh, outline this morning is very simple. Uh, it, it's just simple, that's the bottom line. Uh, Moses encounters God, and in this life-changing experience of God's presence, we see three elements. And I think we can abstract from this that anytime someone encounters God in a life-changing way, these three elements are present. Uh, and those three elements are God's fire, God's mission, and God's name. God's fire, God's mission, and God's name. Exodus 3 and 4, uh, going into the next chapter that we'll look at in two weeks, is a long conversation between God and Moses. I think it may actually be the longest conversation between any two characters in Old Testament narratives. And God reveals himself to Moses in this profound way. It's a life-changing experience. But we need to note verse 1 before we get to these three elements. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay, if we read too quickly, it looks like Moses' life goes from being delivered in a basket to the burning bush to the miracles in Egypt to Mount Sinai. It's like it just goes from one good thing to the next. But we need to slow down here for a minute. Moses' life seems to have taken a radical detour. He escaped death as a child and was raised by the Pharaoh's own daughter. So he had position, access to power, and money. Uh, he had the best education available. He was on track to be an important leader. Uh, in modern terms, it's like being adopted by an heiress who gives you a trust fund and sends you to an Ivy League school and then sets you up with a good job in a senator's office in Washington, D.C. Everything's on track to be a successful leader. Uh, Moses would make Forbes 30 under 30 to watch list, that kind of a thing. But as we know from uh, uh, chapter 2 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, in an attempt to deliver his people from injustice, Moses fails and ends up on the run 
in a foreign land tending sheep. Okay, and this is not just a summer job or a couple year period. We're going to find out in a couple chapters that Moses is now 80 years old. He's been tending sheep for 40 or 50 years. And, uh, you know, Abraham and Jacob have similar experiences and become rich men through them. Uh, but Abraham, it says, it's not even his own sheep he's tending. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. There isn't anything wrong with this simple life. There's nothing wrong with being a shepherd or living a simple life like this. But Moses showed such promise. And the way we look at things, we say, look, we got this exciting up-and-comer, and look how well-prepared he is and well-positioned he is. And he's, he, he's, he's placed so well in society, he's, uh, surely God's going to use this person as a leader. And God says, no, put him out in the wilderness and let him mature for another 50 years. And when he's an 80-year-old shepherd who never lived up to his potential and maybe has a speech impediment and doesn't even own his own sheep and he's dreaming about how can I retire, uh, that's the person I'm going to use to deliver my people. Okay, uh, I, I don't know everybody's age, but if you're near 80, okay, there's a challenge here for you. Okay, God is, you know, he doesn't pick the people we think. But doesn't this often seem to be the case? Uh, we think our life has gone off track. You know, we thought we were going to go to this school, get this job, marry this person. We thought this is the way our life is going to go. Now it's off over here, okay? And it, it doesn't seem to be living up to its potential. And yet what we see in this chapter is that's oftentimes when we experience God's life-transforming uh, uh, presence. So what happens? First, Moses experiences God's fire. That's the first part of encountering God, is God's fire. On this particular day, maybe it's near the end of the season or, you know, the heat of summer, and so Moses takes the sheep up into the high country. He's on a mountain looking for green grass on the very western edge of their usual range. Uh, and verse 2 says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him as a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. This angel of the Lord figure appears in at least a dozen different stories in the Old Testament. And in every one of those stories, we see this strange dynamic where the angel of the Lord appears. And then, like here, who actually does the speaking? It says, the Lord said to him. The Lord said to him. Uh, the same thing happens when Samson's parents see the angel of the Lord, when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army. Uh, they, they meet the angel of the Lord. But then it's the Lord who talks through the angel. There's this distinction between the angel and the Lord, and yet there's this overlap at the same time. Uh, I don't mean this flippantly, but uh, it's a bit like FaceTime or Zoom or something like that. It's a way that God condescends. He comes down to us, and through an angel, he makes himself visibly and audibly present. Okay, so we can encounter God's presence in a way that doesn't destroy us. In this case, uh, the angel appears as flames of fire in the midst of this bush. God's presence is often depicted as, uh, uh, by fire in the Bible. So after Israel leads, leaves Egypt, it's a pillar of fire that leads them during the day. And on Mount Sinai, uh, when, when God meets with Israel, we read, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And think of the day of Pentecost, which we'll celebrate in a couple weeks. Uh, at the day of Pentecost, how is God's presence through his Holy Spirit symbolized? Tongues of fire coming down on his people. Well, the Bible rarely tells us this is what that symbol means. Uh, it, it's there for us to chew on, to reflect on. 
So why fire for God's presence? Well, think about fire. It's life-giving. Uh, you need it to light up at night. You need it to cook your food. You need it for heat in the winter. Uh, especially think in Moses' context as a shepherd. He would have lit fires at night to keep warm in the wilderness, to keep predators at bay. But at the same time, fire is also dangerous. And so it's a picture of God's holiness, life-giving and dangerous. It attracts Moses' attention, but then God's warned, uh, God warns him, don't get too close or you will die. Verse 3, he looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. You know, Moses is leading the sheep. He sees smoke over the horizon. Okay, is that someone else's camp? What's going on? He gets a bit closer, and he sees a fire burning up on the hillside. Uh, and if you're a shepherd, I, I suppose same with, with uh, you know, any kind of farmer. If you see a fire, you're, you're keeping a close eye on it. It's just spreading. Which way is the fire going? And, but what does he see? It's not spreading. It doesn't burn out. Uh, the bush isn't consumed. The fire just keeps burning. And we see how long Moses has been shepherding because he starts talking to the sheep. He says, I'm going to turn aside and go see what's going on over here. You sheep stay here. Uh, and I guess they listen. Um, but this is pivotal. Okay, this is pivotal. Moses turns aside to go see. He turns aside to go see. He, he's inquisitive. He pauses to look for an explanation. And we need to have that kind of inquisitiveness if we want to encounter God. You see how God gets Moses' attention. There's a fire, but it's not burning up the bush. Moses has made lots of fires in the wilderness. I'm sure he's used sage or whatever this bush is to keep fires going at night. He knows that they burn through pretty quickly. And yet this fire is not doing what he expects. It's, it, it breaks his natural expectations. It, it doesn't fit with his preconceptions. And that is often how God tries to get our attention. Something that doesn't fit our preconceptions. I mean, that could be something like if you were here Easter Sunday hearing the good news that Christ is resurrected. You say, well, that doesn't fit with what I think about the world. And if you're inquisitive and you're willing to turn aside and look into it, you know, reflecting on Christ's resurrection can be life-changing. But oftentimes God also uses things in our life that don't fit with our preconceptions. So a common preconception in our day is if that, that, that this romance with this person will truly satisfy me. And if I could just date this person or marry this person, then everything's going to be right. And yet you date that person or you marry that person and you discover it doesn't automatically fix all your problems. Okay? You have an experience uh, that doesn't fit with all your preconceptions. And if you're inquisitive and you dig down on that and you say, what is going on here? I thought this is what the world's like, but now I'm having an experience that tells me it's different. Or um, I started watching this week, and I'm only 15 minutes into it, but the uh, Ed Sheeran documentary that came out. And so don't spoil the ending for me if he becomes a famous singer or not. Uh, okay, I haven't gotten that far, but uh, uh, kidding aside, he has this comment. I didn't write it down, but it stuck with me that he said, you know, initially he was like, I didn't even think I could sell out a, a club and then I'm opening for stadiums, and then he played Wembley Stadium and sold it out, and then he broke the record for the top-selling tour of all time, broke U2's record. Uh, and he said, I didn't think I could do these things. But then he comments, the thing that surprises me is making these external achievements is sort of empty, that it's just not as satisfying as I thought it was going to be. Okay, I don't know where Ed Sheeran's at spiritually, but that's the kind of experience, realizing the emptiness 
of what we thought was going to satisfy us. It's a burning bush. It's something that catches our attention, that breaks our preconceptions. We've got to rethink what we thought we knew to try and get a hold of what's going on. And when those kinds of experiences come to us, the question is, will you turn aside and investigate? When Moses turns aside, God calls to him and warns him, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses believed in the God of Israel. He knew about the God of his fathers intellectually. But you don't just know a fire is hot intellectually. You feel it. Okay, uh, if you've ever burned like a big pile of stumps or, or brush, you know, a 20-foot high pot burn pile, you can't even get within yards of it without feeling the heat. And maybe when you were a kid, you tried to see how close you can get and you feel that fire. Okay, that's what's going on here with Moses. He believes in God intellectually, but as he comes close, he feels God in his bones. He experiences God like a burning fire and it's transformative. You know, remember, this is not a daily experience for Moses. It's not like every morning when I get up and do my devotions, this kind of experience happens. He's been in the wilderness 40 or 50 years, and then one day, for a brief hour, he has this experience. But these sorts of things are possible. It's possible to experience God's presence in a life-transforming way. Uh, on Monday, November 23rd in 1654, there was a, a thunderstorm in Paris. And the philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal had this sort of life-changing experience that he wrote down on a scrap of paper and then he actually had it sewn or he sewed it into the hem of his coat so that it would be with him always. And when he died, they found this thing written in his coat. Uh, here's how, how Pascal describes his experience, part of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. He writes, from half past 10 at night, uh, which is late for me to be up, but uh, if, if you guys are night owls, half past 10 at night until half an hour after midnight, fire. And he writes it in all capital letters, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, let me never be separated from him. What's Pascal saying there? He's saying, as a philosopher, I know about God intellectually. I believed in him. But now this experience happened. Fire, certitude, certainty, peace, joy, feeling. I don't know where you're at today. Okay, maybe you don't. Maybe you've never encountered God and you're saying, uh, you know, this seems too good to be true or it seems bizarre. I'm not sure what I'm hearing. It is possible. It is possible to encounter God's presence and have your life transformed, but you've got to turn aside and see. Or maybe you're a Christian. You've walked with God many years. It's a continual renewal to encounter God, to feel his presence, but it requires a willingness to turn aside. That means a place in your busy schedule, time with God, prayer, reading your Bible, having quiet time away from distractions. Okay, so God, uh, Moses encounters God's fire, but then he discovers God's mission. 
God's mission. That's the second part of experiencing God. Experiencing God, uh, experientially feeling, it can't be abstracted from God's larger mission. If we experience God's presence, we necessarily encounter his commitments and his values and his work. And so Moses' experience is not an end in itself, like, boy, that was a cool thing, now I'm just going to go back to shepherding. But it transforms Moses and prepares him to serve a particular role in God's mission. It transforms him for God's purposes. Uh, at the end of, uh, uh, God reassures Moses in, in a way that echoes the end of chapter 2. He says, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. God has seen and heard and knows he's involved with Israel's suffering. The exodus from Egypt is the model for all salvation in the Bible. And so verse 8, the summary of what God is going to do. The first time in Exodus God has announced his plans, what does he say? He says, I have come down to deliver them and to bring them up again. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to that land, out of that land to a land that is good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's kind of a, it's a blueprint, these key verbs. What salvation looks like. I have come down. It doesn't start with Israel. It starts with God. I have come down to deliver, to set free, and to bring them into a place where they can live in fellowship with me. The plan is so audacious that God basically repeats verses 7 and 8 in verses 9 and 10. But there's one key variation. I wonder if you notice it. Uh, if you think in terms of uh, put yourself in Moses' shoes, you might hear this. Now behold, the cry of the people has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression which, with which the Egyptians uh, oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, everything sounds good until verse 10, but then if you're putting yourself in Moses' shoes, it's like, wait, hang on a second there. Uh, could you say that bit again about, I will send you to Pharaoh? Uh, I thought you were going to deliver the people. Why, you know, what is this about? And indeed, that's, that's what Moses says. Uh, he says, who am I? Okay, being called and encountering God, or, or, or encountering God puts a call on our lives. We have to respond in certain ways. And that both, um, on the one hand, you know, it, it's a great privilege to be called to play a role in God's plans. But on the other hand, it's also demanding and challenging and frightening. Encountering God makes a call on our lives. So we encounter him and we encounter his mission. The rest of the conversation in chapter 3 and 4 then is a series of backs and forths. Uh, Moses asks two questions, then he makes two objections, and then finally he says, you know what, I think maybe you should send someone else. Uh, and, and we'll notice, uh, especially next week, God takes these objections and questions seriously. He doesn't say, you know, quit talking and get on with it. Moses, uh, God wants to have a real relationship with Moses. And so it's an encounter, a back and forth, a conversation. Uh, the first question comes in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses said, I, I tried that once. I tried to deliver them from their bondage and it was a failure. And now I'm on the run for murder. He knows he's not up to the task. Who am I? What can I do? Maybe you've, maybe you've asked that sort of question before. You encounter problems and you think, what can I do about this big problem? God doesn't puff him up. He doesn't say, no, Moses, you're great. You're, you're, you're underselling yourself. You can do this. Uh, he doesn't just dismiss it and say, don't worry about it. No, what does he say? Who am I? God answers, 
but I am with you. That's the decisive factor. It's not who you are. It's is God with you. And God gives him this sign. He says, uh, in retrospect, when you bring the people out of Egypt, you will serve me on this very mountain. And you're going to realize that indeed, I have been with you every step of the way. Okay, Moses draws near to God. He encounters God's fire. And then God reveals to him his mission. And that puts a call on Moses' life to participate in that mission. And those are true for us as well. We can experience God. We can feel him like fire. And it puts a call on our lives to be, participate in God's mission. And then this third part. Uh, uh, Moses says, who am I? God says, I am with you. And Moses says, well, who are you? Uh, you know, and, and he kind of phrases it as, I'm asking for a friend. If, if, if Israel forgets your name, can you, you know, what do I tell him? What, what is your name? Who are you? And this is the third thing that Moses discovers. God's name. God's name. Maybe you noticed in Psalm 148 that we began the call to worship. It ended with praise, not just to God, but to God's name. Okay, his name stands for his character, his person. But also you use a name to, to, to relate to someone. Um, maybe you've had a teacher or professor who says, you know, now that you're out of my class, don't call me Mr. or Dr. so-and-so, but call me by my first name. Saying, I still want to have an ongoing relationship with you. You can address me personally. Okay? Uh, that's the kind of thing that God is doing with Moses here. He's saying, here is my name. You can address me. You can get a hold of me. Uh, maybe in modern, uh, you know, modern number, it's, it's, he's putting his phone number in Moses' phone so Moses can get a hold of him. Okay, so what is God's name then? God gives three answers in verses 14 to 15. God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Jacob. Uh, 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 or, or sorry, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Hey, there's a lot going on here, and I genuinely think that you could probably unpack almost all of Christian doctrine from Exodus 3. Um, but it's warm and it's Mother's Day, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. But uh, uh, stick with me here because this act, it, it seems abstract, but it's actually life-changing. First, uh, what's going on? Why does God give three responses? Is it like he can't decide what he wants Moses to call him? Um, you know, like you're, you're picking a code name and you want to make sure you have a cool enough code name, that kind of thing. Uh, no, uh, what's going on here is, is the proper name that our Bibles translate Lord is related to the third person of the form of this ver uh, verb, I am. Okay, so, so it's like turning I am into a nickname that you can use to address God. And so when he says, I am who I am, I am, it's unpacking, it's explaining the meaning of what it means to call God Lord. God is revealing to Moses aspects of his character that Israel has not yet clearly and fully understood. Okay, but, but, but what does it mean? What, what's he unpacking for them here? Um, I think this I am that I am, it's, it's elusive, it's mysterious, you might even say it's unlimited in terms of its implications. Um, but here seems to be some of the central issues. Every single creature, from the bacteria that lives in your septic tank to some kind of an exoplanet billions of miles away in another galaxy, every single creature is dependent on other creatures for their existence, okay? 
you and I are here not because we decided, you know, that would be fun to exist. I'm going to exist, right? We're here because uh, uh, an uncontrollable, uncountable chain of causes going back to the beginning of the world. Okay? Someone else decided to conceive you. Someone else gave birth to you. Someone else nurtured you when you were little. Someone else taught you at school. Everything about you comes from outside. But God is simply I am. He exists in and of himself. He's not dependent on anything else. He's not dependent on anyone else. Every creature, every single thing in creation receives its existence from outside itself. It's being from outside itself. But God is being itself. The source of all existence. And yet at the same time, he gives Moses a personal name. It's like if the force of gravity also was personal and you could have a relationship with gravity, something like that starts to get you into the ballpark. But go back to the fire. What do you need for a fire? Uh, oxygen, heat, and fuel. What catches Moses' attention at the burning bush? You have a fire, but it's not consuming the bush. It doesn't need fuel. It's existing on its own. I mean, what is, what it, fire gives off heat, life. What is heat? It's energy. The first or second law of conservation tells us that energy is neither created nor destroyed. And yet here is fire just creating energy, letting off heat with no fuel. It's a picture of God's own being, that he simply exists. He doesn't need fuel to exist. With the symbol uh, of the fire in the bush, God's saying, are, are you starting to get the idea? I'm not just Abraham's tribal God. I'm not just another God like the gods of the Egyptians. I am the God who made and sustains and governs and rules and controls and is the end of all things. Every single thing. But even more, because God is self-existent, being itself, God doesn't come into being, and so he's not becoming, right? We're on a trajectory. We were toddlers, and now you know, we're at various points of, of, of maturity and various points of aging, and then one day we'll die. Our life is, is growth and decline. But God's not like that. He says, I am who I am. I was the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character is consistent. But then that means we only learn his character by seeing what he does. God's fire and God's name cannot be separated from God's mission. Uh, in the Two Towers, you might remember Treebeard says uh, he can't tell his name to um, uh, Mary and Pippin, because it takes too long. He says, my name is growing all the time, and I've lived a very long, long time, so my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the things that they belong to. The name God gives to Israel is a bit like that. He's saying, here's this whole story, the book of Exodus, that helps you to understand what my name is about. Uh, in a sense, the whole book of Exodus, uh, that God has control and delivers his people and he has authority and gives them the law and he commits himself to them in covenant and is present with them in the tabernacle, all of that unpacks for us how we use God's name rightly. As we wrap up then, okay, that's an abstract truth, but what does it mean for us, for you and I today? We find freedom in discovering the reality that we all depend not on ourselves, but on God. In realizing we don't control our circumstances, God does. Okay, 
uh, it doesn't depend on us to create our own identities or meaning or value or importance. We try every day, but it leads to anxiety, depression, failure, frustration. Uh, two examples. One, uh, uh, especially in light of Mother's Day, but think about parenting. Parents worry about their children. Uh, we want them to turn out okay, uh, which sounds a little bit like baking muffins, right? You want them to turn out, but, but that's, that's the image we use. We want our kids to turn out, and we worry, and we try and control you know, what they're exposed to and who they hang out with and all those sorts of things. But if you think that you, I mean, you should be a responsible parent. You shouldn't do those sorts of things. You should, you know, kids can't just be let loose on their own. Um, it, uh, nevertheless, if you as parents, we as parents, think that we ultimately control our children's environment or how they're going to turn out, no matter how well-meaning, our parenting will smother our children. Okay, it's actually crushing to them. But if God is ultimately in control, we recognize we're actually trying to do something we can't actually do. And we recognize that God is ultimately in control. He's the source of our being and our children's being, and that God is at work in our children's lives. And what we're called to do as parents is just to, to, to participate in God's mission in their life. That reframes the whole thing. It lowers the pressure. Or think about, uh, just like Moses encounters God and then he's called to participate in God's mission, so Christ's disciples uh, encounter him. Uh, as, as, as Pastor Burt preached last week from John 15, as we read this morning, we're called to abide in him, to rest in him, as a branch by itself cannot bear fruit, uh, unless you abide in me, neither can you do anything. Uh, that's the same kind of imagery that God is giving to Moses here. That I, you know, your being is dependent on me. But then encountering Jesus leads to being involved in Jesus' mission. So he tells his disciples, go into all the nations and make disciples. Okay, now if you think about that mission, that all of us who are disciples are called to make other disciples, and we think that means that somehow in my own uh, winsomeness and, and, and well-chosen words and persuasive arguments, I've got to convince my neighbor and my friends and my non-Christian family members to become Christians. That's crushing. Okay? It's something we can't do. But again, like Moses, if we remember that God is being itself, he is in control of all things, he's already at work, and we're just called to play a part in telling other people who depend on God about the God they depend on, we're giving that people something that they're already hungry for, and it's God doing the work through his spirit, not us. Well, Jesus calls his disciples, and I promise I really am wrapping up here, Jesus calls his disciples to abide in him, to rest in him, and then in Acts 2, that fire, the symbol, the presence of God rests on the disciples' heads on the day of Pentecost. Now, in Exodus 3, God appears through an angel as fire in a bush. That's like three steps removed. And he tells Moses, don't get any closer or it will kill you. But now on the day of Pentecost, the fire of God descends not on a bush, but on the disciples themselves, and yet they're not consumed. What's happened between Exodus 3 and Acts 2 that lets the fire of God, God's presence dwell in his people in a new and profound way without destroying them. What's happened is simply this, that once again, God has worked out salvation. In Jesus, God came down to deliver, 
and to bring his people up again. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the great I Am himself, came down and took on a human uh, existence, took human flesh to himself, not to appear for a few minutes like the angel at the burning bush, but to live a perfectly righteous life and to die the death that sinful humans deserve, to set us free, to redeem us, and to lift us up, to bring us up out of our misery, to be at one with God. And so now God's fire, his presence dwells in his people. God's name is placed on his people at baptism. God's mission works out through the words and actions of you and I. Okay, you could be at different spots this morning. Maybe you don't really have any relationship with God, and you're wondering, you know, can this be true? It is true. It is true. But the question is, will you turn aside and see? Will you take the time to investigate what I'm telling you today that seems so contrary to your preconceptions? Others of us, we've been Christians for a long time, and the question is, are we, are we allowing time and space? Are we turning aside to encounter God? Or maybe we're wondering, uh, you know, you, you know we're, we're, we're sitting here and we're thinking, I feel like, or I am an 80-year-old shepherd with a speech impediment. Uh, you know, and if you're an 80-year-old shepherd with a speech impediment, uh, you're just a bush, a nobody, a nothing. That's where God's presence comes down and works. That's good news. And so like Moses, how are we going to respond to God's call on our lives? We encounter God's fire, his mission, and his name, and it transforms everything. Let us pray. Lord, your word tells us it's possible to experience your presence in a way that profoundly changes our life. It seems too good to be true. For some of us, uh, you know, we feel like Moses in the wilderness after 40 years, like, like we've we pray, we read our Bibles, we come to church, and yet we want to experience your presence, and it seems ever delayed. I ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would be present with us even this morning. As we sing your praises in a moment, that we would experience your presence and be transformed. Thank you that through Jesus Christ, you came down once again, that you delivered us, and that you bring us up to yourself. 